Okay, good morning, everyone. Good to see you. Welcome to Chinese Church in Christ, South Valley. To lower this, because Daniel's three inches taller than me. All right, here we go. All right, so now, Daniel, thanks for leading us in some um, songs that require clapping on the upbeat. I agree with him that it was better than it has been at times. And now that we've all joyfully done that, now we're going to just as joyfully receive the word where Jesus tells us we have to give all our money away. Okay, ready? No, I'm just kidding. Um, but it is a passage that we're going to talk about, the rich young ruler. And the reason for that is if you've been joining us, we've been uh, in, a, in a series where we've been talking about discipleship and what it means to be a disciple. And we're going to do this for this week and next week, and then it'll be, uh, then it'll be time for our retreat. So real quick, before we, um, before we get into today's passage, just a reminder that our church retreat is in two weeks. Last week I said it was two weeks, and I was completely wrong because I was having trouble remembering what day it was. Um, and, uh, but in two weekends, Friday through Sunday, we'll be at our all-church retreat at Mission Springs. We hope you can join us. If you are interested and haven't signed up, uh, come talk to Daniel or I, and we can get you signed up for it. Um, I'll say more about that just briefly as we get into the message. We've got a long passage we're going to read through today, so I want to get started by just reading um, all the verses that we're going to look at. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. Um, it'll also be up here on the screen, but we want to read starting in verse 17. So this is Mark chapter 10, starting verse 17. So I'm going to read it for us, and uh, we're going to read the whole passage before we talk about it. And as he, he meaning Jesus, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And the man said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brother or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let's pray. God, we thank you um, for the ways that your word has been showing us what it means to be your follower, to be your disciple, to live a life that follows you, that experiences life in the kingdom of God. 
And so, Lord, as we look into this passage today, uh, Lord, I pray that we would have open minds and open hearts to what you want to say to us through these words that we've just read. God, that we could see how worth it it is to follow you. And God, that that would be our conclusion as we've thought about from many different angles what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. And Lord, I pray that we could see uh, just the, um, the joy that comes with it, the same joy that we sang of as we clapped on the upbeat, Lord, that following you is more joyous than anything else in this world, even when there are challenging sacrifices that go along with it. So God, I just pray for uh, just open hearts and minds as we consider these words today. We love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So several months ago, um, and the point was not related to this passage, but at our youth group on Friday night, um, I asked all of our youth to do this exercise with us as a group where I wanted them to think about what is your life going to look like 10 years from this day? Now, the point had nothing to do with this passage, but it kind of relates based on everyone's uh, reaction to this. Um, The point was very different just for us to think about how we have expectations for our lives and how God might change them to be very different. But when I asked someone to kind of share what their life would be like 10 years from now, the results were shocking. And so this is what happened. Um, Daniel Dyer, a wonderful keyboard player, um, as someone who people often turn to to let him have the first word, he was the one who spoke up. And as he described his life 10 years from now, it started off very descriptive, and then it just kept going downhill after that. And this was the context. He was, you know, as an aspiring artist, Daniel's a very gifted artist, he, you know, in his future, he saw art school and being an artist and then struggling to see how he might support himself because that's what we say about people who don't major in STEM or like have a a tech job. It's like, how are you going to feed yourself? And so he went from like waking up and doing his art and like thinking about it to just despairing about how large his student loans were and how he didn't have any plan of how he was going to pay them off. And it was crazy because as much like in my mind, I'm like, bro, you're 14. like. There's way more to look forward to than just like paying off your student loans. And what was crazy about it is he was clearly not alone in thinking about the worrisome future that his like future financial situation would have because it was like a mob mentality where the whole youth group was like kind of backing him up and they're like, yeah, I'm gonna struggle to pay off my student loans too. Like this world's terrible. Everything on this side of COVID is like, we have nothing to look forward to. And I was like, This exercise is not going the way I had planned for this youth group night, right? And what this whole interaction taught me about the way we view life and society and especially money is that the idea of wealth is very important to our lives. Whether we're someone who cares deeply about money or not, if you live here in Silicon Valley, one of like, at least from a number standpoint, one of the richest places in the world, You cannot live here without worrying about money to some degree, right? And you could see that. Now, the other part is, like, you could see this tension where Daniel was, like, desperately wanting to, like, be an artist, even though many, um, don't take this the wrong way, Daniel. You can do whatever you want to do in your future. But many artists, once they understand the realities of the financials of it, then they just... Like, you know what, I'm just going to go get a tech job because it's, you know, life is that much easier, right? And that's, that's the guaranteed salary I have to look forward to. And so what it shows us is that money really does, at least in our earthly world, money really does make the world go round because we're all worried about it. But there was this tension where it's like, 
something that, you know, is meaningful to Daniel. Being an artist is something that he wanted to follow. And I think both how we think about money, but also how we think about meaning and our morals and how we live, like the choices that we make, this is all on display here in this interaction that Jesus has with this man. And if we're going to be disciples of Jesus, if, we're, if we remember the definition that Daniel's given us over and over again about being a disciple, it's about being a follower of Jesus. We really have to consider this passage, living where we live in Silicon Valley, where money is a big deal. And what we're going to see is money is not the only issue at stake in this passage. And so... Um, before we get into our three points, here's what I want to say. Like, a lot of this passage is going to deal with money. This is not a holistic description of how we should think about money as a disciple. And the reason for that is I'm just going to focus on this one passage and what I think it teaches us about our hearts and about our motivation. Jesus talks about money so much in the Gospels, over and over again, right? Um, if you want some resources, a, a particularly, like, I think, really meaningful resource that we can offer you when it comes to thinking about money in the kingdom of God, I would direct you to our YouTube page where several months ago, about five, six months ago, um, at Vertigo, our Wednesday night fellowship group that meets at Daniel's house. If you're an adult and you want to come join us, we'll be there 630 every week. Um, but we had Peter Fong, who was previously our pastor here who will be our speaker at our retreat in two weeks. Really looking forward to that. We had Peter and Ken, who happens to be not only an elder of our church, but a director of finance, someone who knows a lot about money. We had two of them do a presentation about like what they think about money as a follower of Jesus. And it's very well done. Um, Jeremiah worked hard to make sure there was good video and audio quality. So even though it's shot in Daniel's kitchen, that YouTube video that is about an hour and 40 minutes of good, really good stuff is up there. So all you got to do is type in CCICSV into YouTube. The page will come up. If you go back to like, I think it was in April, but if you just go back, there's not a ton of videos. There's just the sermons that we have. If you go back and you just see two guys sitting in a, at a kitchen table, you'll know and the, the title will be there and all that. It's a great resource to see like what the Bible has to say about God and money. And I've been shaped very much by both of their um, takes on money. And so uh, this is not a holistic like description of how we want to think about money from a gospel perspective. We're mainly going to focus on what we see here in this passage. But if you're looking for that, that is a great resource I would want to direct you to. All that to say, we're going to see three things in this passage. We're going to focus mainly on the first one because it takes up the most verses, at least in terms of the story. But these three, we're going to focus on this first one, and then we'll also see how the second two are important as well. But first, we're going to see that a disciple loves Jesus more than money. And that's really important. That's where we're going to camp out for the majority of this message. And then secondly, we're going to see that a disciple realizes that money does not equal morals. And I kind of struggled with the wording on this, but we're going to see how like, money is not everything. And it also doesn't mean that just because we have some level of financial success in our life, that it means like we are ultimately successful in a given way. It's maybe from one side we are, but um, I'm struggling with the wording on that. But you'll see what we mean when we get into the passage there. And finally, at the end, we're going to see from the last interaction that uh, Jesus has with um, the disciples that a disciple loves, uh, that a disciple trusts that it is worth it to follow Jesus. If we're gonna say that a disciple loves Jesus more than money, hopefully we can see how it is worth it as well. So as we get into the passage, first thing we see here in verse 17 is 
This man, who has great wealth, he comes up to Jesus and he asks Jesus a question. We want to see, he intentionally seeks Jesus out. He's coming from a good motivation where he really does want to experience, as he asks about, eternal life. He really does want to know what Jesus has to say about money. The challenge is going to be when Jesus actually gives him an answer. But we want to give him credit for that, that he intentionally comes to Jesus and asks, like, you know, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Great question that all of us could emulate. Like, it's a question that I'm sure we ponder at different times when we think about matters of heaven and hell and life and death. It's a good question for us to ask. So we want to give the man some credit for that. He is interested in what it means to follow Jesus. And I think many of us uh, have some similarities with this man. We have at least some desire to follow Jesus in some way or, or to want to know what that's all about. Now, our challenge is going to be to see how we respond to what Jesus says to him, and uh, we can learn a lot from his response. Here's what Jesus says to this question. The man asks, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus has a really curious response here. He says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, someone whispered under his breath, someone in sixth grade said, he is God, right? So that makes it confusing, right? It's okay, I know who it was. We're good, we're good. But anyway, that's a good response to this because it's a strange, it's a strange answer that Jesus gives. If he is the son of God, he's probably in his early 30s. We know from other parts of scripture that he's lived this long and not committed a sin, and that's because he's the son of God. Then it's like, of course you should call him good because that's like in his nature, right? So why does Jesus respond by saying, why do you call me good? Um, is Jesus saying that he really isn't good? That can't be it. Why does he say this? And perhaps what he is trying to show us is that what it means to be truly good is different than what we might think. And we're going to see this unfold as the passage goes out. But this, I really believe Jesus gives this answer, this response at first. Uh, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he goes into a listing of the commandments, right? And uh, if you go back to the book of Exodus, when God gives Moses the Ten Commandments, you see many of these here. And for this man who comes before Jesus, you can get a sense from the context that this man knows the commandments. We know that because he says, teacher, I've, I've kept all of these commandments since I was young, right? And so the man's response is interesting. We'll talk about this a little bit later. But he seems pretty confident that based on how he's lived his life, that he is a good person. He says, I've kept all these commandments like since I was young. Now, I don't know. It's an interesting thought experiment to think about. I think because people, if people know I'm a pastor, they assume that there's some level of moral goodness. And uh, a lot of people I think would, I'm, trust me when I say I'm not boasting in this because I don't think I'm that good a person many times, but uh, a lot of people would look at someone in my position and say, that's a good person, right? Um, And this man says, I've kept all the commandments since I was young. And it's when I read that, I'm like, oh, I know I have not kept all the commandments since I was young. That's a pretty bold statement to say, like, this is how I've lived my life. And he may be speaking in generalities, sure. Um, But there's a lot that we're going to be able to learn from this as we keep unpacking this conversation. But this man seems pretty confident in the way that he's lived his life. And I think there's reasons for that that we will uncover as we go. In verse 21, Jesus has an interesting response, at least internally first, but then also externally when he responds to him verbally. 
And I love in verse 21, it says, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. And that's an important part of the passage because what Jesus is about to say to him is very challenging. And we might think Jesus is just trying to like, you know, one-up him and make him see all the errors of his ways. But I think Mark really includes this small phrase to see Jesus is not doing this just to bring condemnation to this man's life. He's not doing this just to kind of like, you know, flip his world upside down. I mean, he definitely is holistically, but there's also this love that exists from Jesus to this man. And what we're going to see is this man, at least in terms of his priorities and what he wants to live for, is not what Jesus is looking for. And Jesus loves him in spite of that. And that's a really important description as we read about this here. And so... Um, Jesus says this. He says, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now, this is a challenging passage for us when we read the Bible. And many times when we read the Bible, without careful like thought thinking or, or interpretation. A lot of times if we think the Bible says this, therefore I should do the exact same thing. A lot of times we can read this passage and we might think, oh my gosh, is Jesus asking me to sell everything I have right now in this moment, right? And that's tough for us. It was tough for this man. That would be a tough question that I think comes up for us. Now, Fortunately, I don't think that we are meant to apply this just at a purely like, you know, surface level, like one-to-one comparison. I think Jesus is actually trying to go much deeper, and there's things that we can learn from this. Um, But there's a lot that we want to kind of unpack when it comes to what Jesus says here. And what's really going on is that for this man, because he was a man of great wealth, Jesus is really hitting him kind of where it will hurt the most, right? And what he's doing is Jesus knows this man's heart and his motivations, and he knows what will be hardest for the man to give up to follow him. This is why I believe Jesus is not like, he doesn't mean for all, like however many of us, 50 some people in this room, I don't think it's a perfect one-to-one comparison where it's like, okay, the meaning of today's passage is go and sell all you have to the poor and follow Jesus. That's what we should all do as we get up out of this room, go quit your job, sell your house, sell everything you have, give it all to the poor, and follow Jesus. And here's why I think Jesus is not saying that specifically to each one of us. I don't think Jesus is going to ask me to do that, to give up all I have and like donate it to the poor. Now, why would I say that? Because I don't have that much money, okay? For me to like give up everything that I have, like at least financially, compared to many of you in this room, that is not a big sacrifice. It would be a sacrifice, sure, but that's not the point. Jesus knows what this man like values the most, what he holds on to the most. And the point is not about how much or all these things, but the point is whatever we hold dearest to ourselves in our lives, if God calls us to give that, give that up, are we willing? That's really the heart of what Jesus is getting at when he sees this man. For this man, it's his money because he has a lot of it. But for some of us, it could be other things. It could be our reputation. It could be our job, which I get is tied to money and there's, you know, there's these similarities. But um, I share this 
Uh, I share this movie illustration with a lot of people in a lot of di different situations. It can be if like you're trying to date someone and the person you desperately like think you're in love with like doesn't feel the same way about you or like a school that you're trying to get into or a specific job. In, in whatever case, it's where it's something that you think you cannot live without. If you can go back to a really wonderful movie from the 90s made by Disney named Cool Runnings about the Jamaican bobsled team, there is a fantastic scene in that movie. And if you know, it's based on a true story, right? It's about how a former American bobsledder like went and coached four Jamaican guys to go and compete in the Winter Olympics, like to compete in the sport where there's definitely no snow or anything like that in Jamaica. But over the course of the movie, as they're you know, starting to do better and better and improve and all this, there's a point where the driver of the bobsled has a conversation with his coach. Now, the reason they found this coach was that no one wanted this coach to be coaching their team because he had been kicked out of the bobsledding circle for cheating, where he had hid weights in the front of his sled to make it go faster. And because of that, he was blackballed from like the bobsledding community. No one wanted anything to do with him. And so when the driver was talking to the coach, he said, coach, like, why did you do it? Why did you cheat? And the coach's response can teach us a lot about life and a lot about what Jesus, I think, is trying, us, trying to get us to understand. And the coach, he says to the, the character, his name is Doris. he says, Doris, a gold medal is a wonderful thing. It's a wonderful thing. It's something that we all want. But if you're not enough without it, you will never be enough with it. And what he's trying to say is he thought it was the thing he had to have, so much so that he cheated in order to get it. And then look what happened. There was all the fallout from, from everything that happened. And the message that he was trying to get him to see is that if we love anything that much where we have to have it, like, and that's like what defines us, it will not satisfy us in the ways that we think it will. And that was his experience. And I think that's the same thing that Jesus is trying to get this man to understand. You have accumulated lots of wealth, but it's what it's teaching us is if we love anything more than we love following Jesus, if there is something in our lives, whether it's a future career or our reputation, whatever it might be, that we cannot give up, that butts heads with the idea of what it means to be a disciple and to follow Jesus. And it's challenging. It was challenging for this man here. Now, for us, we may not all be in the same situation as this man. If, if, uh, if Jesus came and asked you this exact question, and it would be really hard for you, then this passage is for you. But there's a lot of us where this passage applies to us in other ways, where the point is for us to see there are many great blessings that God gives us in our lives. But if we love any of those things more than we love following God, then we have to reevaluate what it means to be a disciple. And so Jesus is hitting this man where it is most personal for him. And we learn a lot from this man's response because what happens in verse 22? It says, disheartened by Jesus' words or by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. Other versions that you might have in front of you, sorrowful is a big word. But it might simply say, this man went away sad. And it shows that there is something that he deeply holds onto that when Jesus is asking him if he's willing to give this up, he loves it so much that he can't do it. Um, similarly to this idea of what we're saying, um, is a statement that always stuck out to me from the late Tim Keller, who I'm a, a big fan of and who I've listened to most of my life. 
Um, but he says, the true God of your heart is where your thoughts go to effortlessly. And I think that's true, because for us, we may not be obsessed with wealth and riches in the way that this man is, although it is hard not to think about money quite a bit in Silicon Valley. But there are things that we can put above God that consume our minds and our hearts. And uh, what this passage at least should kind of uh, bring us awareness of is, is there something that I'm thinking about all the time that I'm obsessed with, like just so I can get that one thing, whether it might be getting into the right school or getting, having the right career or buying the right house or whatever it might be. There are things that can consume us unnecessarily to the point where we want to see how God might be just asking us to trust him with those things. And so this man goes away sad because of the question that Jesus asks. And really what I think it suggests is he wants to be rich more than he wants to follow Jesus. Like, I think that's what is at the heart of it here. And so that leads us to a well-known but difficult saying of Jesus that we want to unpack here today. And so after the man goes away sad, Jesus looks around and he says to his disciples who are there with him, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Pretty curious statement, right? If you think about a needle and how small they are, and then, I mean, we don't live in the ancient Near East, but we have some idea of what a camel is like, and it's a pretty big animal. Like, how in the world could a camel, like, pass through the eye of the needle? There are some commentators who will try to find some loopholes to explain this passage. Um, they might say that the description is meant for, like, a small entrance into a city where a camel can get through, but it's like, it's, you know, they have to kind of contort their bodies, like, to get smaller to, like, fit through. So it's not that it's impossible, but that it's, like, you have to go to great efforts, like, to make it work. Um, kind of could make sense in, in light of the passage, or there's others who will say uh, the, the translation for needle might be a little wonky, and it might be something more like a, like a big rope, where it's like hard to get like a thick rope around the camel's neck to lead them somewhere. These are all possibilities. I don't buy any of them, and the reason for that is I think Jesus is being hyperbolic here on purpose. It's not the only time where Jesus is hyperbolic in his descriptions. Um, and so what he's really trying to show us is if we, uh, if we love money this much, um, it really does make things difficult when it comes to following Jesus. And, uh, and like the more money we have, the more we have to manage it, the more that there are problems that come up. Um, in a similar exercise to the one that I shared that Daniel Dye did, that we did with adults, where we tried to imagine what our lives would be like 10 years from now. A lot of us who were there in our early 20s, we were thinking about what will it be like when I like one day buy the perfect house and now that I'm at the age where a lot of my friends have become homeowners, I've become aware of the fact that merely owning your own house does not solve all your problems. It actually, quite honestly, brings about a lot more problems when you own the house and the plumbing breaks or you have to do massive repairs or you get like termites or whatever it might be. There can be all kinds of challenges that, are, that go along with it. And so it shows us that when it comes to wealth, the more we can accumulate, a lot of times there's the more that we can worry about and the more, the more difficult that it can become to keep our minds on what it means to live in the kingdom of God. I think we experience this often when our youth group goes down to Mexico. I mean, I've said this multiple times in sermons here before, but I'll say it again. 
I think a lot of times when we see kind of the caliber of house that we're working on or what the economy looks like down there or um, kids who maybe have like two sets of clothing and they're just running around carefree, like nothing like is bothering them, we might see, wow, there's so much material and like, yeah, monetary need here. And yet people can seem happier than those of us who have a lot more when it comes to uh, financial wealth. And so it's just really interesting to see this dynamic that's on display. And that's why Jesus says it, would, it, it's like, it is like a camel passing through the eye of the needle. Now, let's try to get a little bit um, practical about this. Because if Jesus isn't specifically asking all of us the exact same question, maybe he is. It depends on like, what we're hearing from God as, as we're considering this passage. Um, but when we think about what does this look like for us right here at CCIC South Valley, the reality is we live in Silicon Valley. It's a, very, it's a place where money is not only important, it's needed to be able to live here. How do we apply this? And so really, if we're going to love Jesus more than we love money, I think it means trusting Jesus when it comes to these areas of wealth in the following ways. And uh, if you want a greater explanation of this that I think is done really well from Peter and Ken, again, go back to that YouTube video. They go into great detail that I'm not going to have time to do here in this moment. But really, uh, some of the things we talked about on that night was um, trusting Jesus with our money as his followers here. It means a few things. It doesn't mean only these three things, but I think these three things are important. It means not holding too tightly to our money where we're so concerned about like hitting a certain financial like marker in our lives where I need to have this much money that we can't like help care for people who are in need or we can't consider how we might share money within the kingdom of God or you might get emails about our missionaries who have lots of financial needs. And um, if we are so obsessed with hitting a certain amount of money where we think, oh, there's this like big need that Bob Clinton, one of our missionaries, has over in Nepal and India, where people have this huge need, but I need to hit all my financial goals for this year when it comes to my investments. If we're not willing to at least consider that, then we have to, under, we have to ask ourselves, what is our main motivation? And so, um, really, when it comes to the kingdom of God, I have been so blessed by people who don't hold too tightly to the money that they have. A great example is Greg Robertson, one of our uh, elders who used to be here and he's moved out of the area, lives up in Arnold, but I can't think of how many Friday nights we spent at his house just literally eating all the food in his house. Like, we knew where the pantry was. Like, we wouldn't even ask him for permission. We knew where the popcorn was. We knew where the microwave was. It was like, okay, after youth group, or if we're hanging out there for youth group, we'll just go over to his house. If you're in youth group now, Man, I'm sorry you missed out on that generation because it was awesome. Um, but like, we would just go into and raid his raid his pantry, eat all his food, and not once would he ever ask us to like bring food ourselves. Just out of the generosity of his heart, it was just like he was willing to give us anything that might like contribute to a great time of fellowship. When I was a freshman in college and I uh, went to a Christian fellowship, um, on the first night that we were there, we all went out to eat afterwards, and immediately. Every member of the fellowship just found one person who was a freshman, who was brand new to college, and just grabbed them and was like, okay, what do you want for dinner tonight? And just paid for all of us, because it was a way they wanted to welcome us into this fellowship, right? And uh, that, was a huge part of our, uh, that was a huge part of our fellowship at this time. And there are ways that we can be a blessing, but we can't do that if we are holding on very tightly to our money. And I wonder what 
this man would kind of think about that when he's counting up all the wealth that he has. Now, um, when it comes to practically how we think about money, um, I think there's a lot we can learn from the, all those description we just, descriptions we just had. However, if you're anything like me, we can apply this in totally the wrong way, and I want us to guard against that. So for me, like, even though I'm half Asian, maybe this accounts for some of it, but it's like, I haven't grown up with the same, like, I don't know, kind of Asian mentality towards money where you just have to save everything and be super, like, spendthrifty and make sure, like, you always have enough. My dad tried, but he also raised us in America and it just didn't work. So it's like, you know, for me, I've never had trouble spending money. So my mindset could be, Jesus says, go and, like, you know, don't hold on too tightly to your money. I'm like, okay, let's go spend it off. Like, you know, let's be reckless, because if we have less money, then, you know, there's less to worry about, and then it's not always consuming our minds. Now, to some degree, I think there is at least some, like, value in that. But what we talked about on that night at Daniel's house when Ken and Peter were talking about money is if we go too far in the other direction where we run up some massive debt, then we're worried about, like, when are we going to pay it off, right? How are we going to do that? And so... In either case, whether we're holding too tightly to our money or we're like spending it all and we're totally irresponsible, in either case, the money has control over us in a way where we want to just, we don't want to be in that situation where something is distracting us from following Jesus. Um, when I had student loans in seminary, I can attest to the fact that even though there was no other way to, to go about it other than to take out loans or, or just wait and save money for a long time before I would start, I can say that I would worry about it a lot, and I would pray about it, and I would ask that God would provide, and God, in his grace, always did, but it would cause some anxiety that would fill my mind, that would distract me from maybe other ways that God was calling me to live. And then uh, just, it, it means that we're not obsessed with the earthly currencies kind of in either way, right? Now, this is not, again, this is not a holistic way about how to think about money um, from Jesus' perspective. There's a lot more verses that talk about it. And again, go watch that video. But these are some things I think we need to think of when it comes to this passage and when we live here in Silicon Valley. If you live here, it's impossible not for us to like, have to try to accumulate some money to pay rent, to buy a house here. That's just the financial reality of Silicon Valley. That's part of it. But if God is calling us to be generous in the way that the Bible talks about in many different passages, and we can't do it because of like concerns we have or expenditures that we have or whatever it is, I think we're missing out on how God wants us to consider wealth in the kingdom of God. And so there's an interesting part of this passage then that we want to move on to. So that's the first thing we see. Jesus is trying to help this, young, this man who approaches him see that a disciple, a follower of Jesus, loves Jesus more than money, where he, we can heed his words and follow him regardless of what it means for our bank account. But then we're going to see that a disciple realizes that money doesn't equal like morals or success or being a good person in the way that we might think, yeah, duh, of course that means. There's plenty of terrible rich people in this world. Of course it doesn't mean that. But su subtly, I think we believe this more than we think. And it's important for us to kind of unpack this in the way that I think we can see on display in this passage. And so we get this a little bit from the, the, from the response uh, that, Jesus, that the disciples have um, for Jesus at this time. And so Jesus makes this curious statement about the camel and the needle. Um, and so the disciples have this response in verse 26 that I think is fascinating, right? 
Jesus says, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are surprised that Jesus says this. And they say, well, then who can be saved? Now, that's a curious statement if you think about it. Because really what the disciples are saying is, this man, he has great wealth. He's been responsible. He's been financially savvy. So therefore, like, and they're now asking, well, then who can be saved? In some way, they are equating his earthly kind of responsibility and financial success with someone who's a good person. And we actually do this quite a bit more in our world than we might think. Where we think, man, this person's really successful. They've like, you know, they've had a small business. They've worked their way up. Like, they must be a really hardworking and good person. And it's interesting because, like, when you get into the disciples' motivations here, I think it's fascinating. Um, but they ask this question because more often than not, I think subconsciously, we think the same way as the disciples. But it's like, I have to be successful in order to be a good Christian, in order to be a follower of Jesus. And um, the more that we spend time with our, uh, just our full-time missionaries who host us in, in Ensenada when we take the youth group down to, uh, to, to Mexico every summer, meeting missionaries who are fully just dependent on people's donations like to fund them is a really uh, just faith-driven activity that I think teaches us a lot about how we can live as Jesus's followers, even if we don't have like a comfortable amount of wealth. And so um, I think it's also interesting. I think the disciples are kind of like hoping that Jesus like makes this man like another one of his followers. Why? Because they're like, ooh, this guy has a lot of money. He can help out our ministry in a lot of ways because he's got a lot of money, right? And so we're going to view him as this successful moral person because there's like motivations to get him to come and be a part of it. Happens all the time. Hopefully not ever in our church. That's not ever our motivation when it comes to things like this. But you see this in organizations. What? There's a potential donor with a large bank account? Okay, let's take him out to dinner in hopes that he's going to return the favor like, you know, tenfold and on and on and on, right? And that's how, that's how the world works. But it's really interesting because to tie into the fact that somehow the disciples are equating this man's wealth with the fact of salvation from the way they respond, when you go back to what the man's answer was to Jesus when Jesus talks about all the commandments, this man who's very financially wealthy also seems to show off that he's lived a very good moral life over and over again. Teacher, all these things I have kept since I was a boy. And so the whole thing, the reason this is important for us is for some of us, we might not think about money that much. We might, we might be like, Dan, I don't know what to make of this, this passage. Like, I'm 14, I'm 15. Like, I don't have any money of my own. My parents pay for everything. Like, I don't know how to apply this. And that's fine. But the lessons that we can learn that Jesus asks this man to consider, what, like, would it be hardest for him to give up the most is important. And similarly, if we, like this man, think that we morally can measure up to what it means to obey all of the commandments, I think we have another thing coming. And what that shows us is this man is very confident in the ways that he lived and the ways that he is a good person. We know the reality of what scripture teaches us, Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The people that I uh, have been around who have either discipled me or really impacted me the most in my Christian walk are people who are ready to kind of say the opposite of what this man says. 
where it's like, here are the ways that I have fallen short of the glory of God, and yet I am so loved, and that makes me want to follow him that much more. It's a very different mindset than what this man's mindset is here. And so whether we think we are rich financially and that somehow equates success on an earthly level or, God forbid, a spiritual level, although I think there's some of that going on here, we also can think, man, I'm a really good person. And that's a very dangerous place to be because, you know, I'm not saying we don't want to try to live, like, good, at least from a worldly perspective. Like, we want to be kind to people. We want to be people who are loving and and have people view us in this way. But if we are unable to acknowledge the ways that we fall short, in the way that seemingly this man was unable to see his blind spot, that he loved his money more than he loved Jesus, then that gets in the way of us being followers of Jesus. I think that's why in the start of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus doesn't say, blessed are those who have kept all these commandments since they were a young child. It's the opposite, because in the kingdom of God, what Jesus is looking for is people who can acknowledge the ways that we fall short of God's glory, but are able to humbly say, I am in need of a savior, and this is what is going to change my life, not the pride over what I think I've done and the ways that I've lived. And so a disciple realizes that earthly success, like this man was experiencing, did not mean that he knew what it meant to be a follower of Jesus. And so either way, whether it comes to our money or just the ways that we live, the point is that to see that in the same way a rich person um, who's defined by their money doesn't understand the kingdom of God, if we don't understand our need for salvation in the way that this man didn't, then it's hard for us to realize what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Finally, the last thing that we're going to see is that a disciple trusts that it is worth it to follow Jesus. And that might be our kind of our, our question that we're asking Like, man, for this man, if he really gave up everything, like, what does he have to actually, like, look forward to? Or what does he have to hope in if he has to give up all the money that he's earned throughout his life? And in a way, Peter asks the same question as this this passage wraps up. Because in verse 28, Peter says, Jesus, we have left everything and followed you. And I'm mainly bringing this up to kind of tease next week's message, because as we finish up our series on discipleship, we're going to look at the famous verse where Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself daily and take up his cross and follow me. We're really going to talk about what, it, what sacrifice has to do with being a disciple. And this is a little bit of a preview for that. Peter's response is interesting here. Because Peter, in some ways, seems like he's saying, Jesus, do you realize we've given up everything uh, to follow you? I really wish like, we could hear Peter's tone of voice here. Because I'm actually not quite sure what Peter means by this. Is Peter saying, like, Jesus, we've given up everything to follow you, so you know, you've got to provide for us. So you've gotta... But I also wonder if in the life of Peter, there's these moments where he's constantly seeing that it is totally worth it to follow Jesus throughout his life, as we've seen in other parts that I'll mention in a moment. Um, But he's just kind of working this out. And you see this in Peter's life, where there is some understanding of the kingdom of God that's coming together that he fully realizes when Jesus gives his life for ours on the cross. And then Peter's a totally different person once the Holy Spirit enters into him after Jesus' death and resurrection, where it's like he's getting there in understanding what it means to give up everything, and then it clicks for him later on. But the reason I say this is if we think about the verse that we based our church theme on this year, to go out into the deep water, 
It's such a fascinating passage where Peter listens to the voice of God. Even though there's a lot of reasons why he shouldn't, he is willing to listen to Jesus' voice and go back out and cast his nets one more time, even though he was a professional fisherman. And then when he catches the miraculous catch of fish, the question that I mentioned that bothers me when I preached on this passage, when we introduced the theme, that still bothers me to this day is, what about all the fish that they caught that are just lying there on the side of the road like after they brought the boat in? And Peter didn't give them one thought. At that point, Peter realized there is something worth following Jesus that's way more important than the best catch of fish I've ever had, the most financial gain I would ever make, right? I'm really looking forward to our retreat in two weeks um, because we're going to be thinking about our theme, kind of uh, considering what has God done in our lives uh, in the area of listening to God's voice and following him out into the deep water. And having Peter, who I said, gives us so many great things that we can listen to if you search up this YouTube video that I'll plug at least one more time right now. Um, I'm excited to get to hear from what God's going to put on his heart when it comes to listening to God's voice and following his directives in our lives. Because that's really what it means to be a disciple. And so um, it's a good preview to see that though Peter has this question in this moment, I think throughout the Gospels we also see ways where Peter is like, wow, it is amazing to follow Jesus. And when Uncle Rupert had this theme that he wanted to share with us uh, about going out into deep water, the, the words that he said that I can constantly remember that made me want to like, know more about this theme and try to live it out and try to understand it, was he said, when Peter gave up everything and left the fish there, and when he just listened to Jesus' voice and followed him, his life was never the same. And when you think about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of him, if we do the things that Jesus asks, if we learn from his teachings and all the ways we've talked about when it comes to prayer and priorities and all the things we've talked about in this series, I really believe we will experience that our lives are not the same. Even if it means as difficult as giving up something that's dearly important to us, as it must have been for Peter in that moment to leave the fish there lying on the shore, he experienced something that was far greater and that was life in the kingdom of God. And I think that's something that God wants for all of us as well.